those days. The order of service changed about six times this week, so it was a bit disorienting. Um, all right, so I mentioned last week, um, whether you remember or not, I mentioned, I asked the question, how did Matthew know what was going on in Herod's palace in Matthew chapter 2? Um, and, I, and I said that's a, I didn't really assign it as homework. It's not like this is a graded thing. But I said, isn't that an interesting question? Why do you think, how do you think um, he might have known that? Um, and I think there's actually a clue to that. You can you can dig into this if you want. There's a clue to that in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 13, we find out that one of the, the leaders of the church in Antioch was actually from the household of Herod. Um, and so um, he was actually, the, the term is actually foster brother of the son of Herod the Great. And so if there was an avenue by which someone might have learned things that were going on um, in the household of Herod, one would assume that um, being the uh, foster brother, boon companion, close friend of one of his sons is probably a pretty good way uh, to find that stuff out. Um, and then when we get to the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke, uh, neither Mark nor Luke are apostles. They're writing um, for other apostles, and so they would not have the close association that Matthew would have had. So, so that's for free. Um, one of the other things that I, I, I wanted to draw attention to before we get into this is there's an insert in the bulletin. On one side of it is the Advent reading. And on the other side of it is a diagram of what, what we call the ring composition of the book of Matthew. If you've ever read um, the book of Matthew, you probably read it beginning to end. You start at the beginning, you end, and you read it in a straight line. You just read it as a straight history. And that's perfectly fine. Um, but the way that Matthew actually writes um, his gospel, he actually uses this ring structure or ring composition um, method of writing, wherein you start at one point, you work your way through to a central point, and then you come back around, the narrative continues to develop, and you basically reach, um, essentially, you come back to the beginning with a completely different understanding of where you started from. Um, and so he starts with that opening narrative and the incarnation and the magi and, and all of the stuff that we're in right now, um, he works his way through five discourse passages, which are five passages where Jesus is teaching, a bunch of narratives in between those discourses, all the way through to the passion narrative, Jesus' crucifixion, trial, crucifixion, burial, resurrection. And actually, if you read the book of Matthew, understanding the structure, you'll actually see where Matthew comes back to the same ideas and the same themes. He works his way through to chapter 13 as the central uh, discourse. Jesus tells a bunch of parables about the kingdom. On the way through, Matthew is proving that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and presenting proofs and arguments for Jesus' authority as a miracle worker, um, his position as a fulfillment of prophecy, all the way through to chapter 13 and then from chapter 13 on after those parables it is just a series of people asking the question will we follow Jesus or not finding reasons to reject him finding reasons to turn away from him or seeking to understand how to better follow him and so you have kind of this structure um, so if you're reading the gospel of Matthew along with us um, in the coming months that's a useful structure to kind of say where are we in the narrative what what is happening here um, now, I want to clarify, I want to make sure you understand, uh, this does not mean that Matthew made stuff up to make it fit his structure. 
But rather, Matthew is insightful enough to know Jesus' story and Jesus' narrative and Jesus' teachings well enough to be able to structure in such a way that it's relatively easy to memorize and to repeat orally in this pattern. That's why, why you have these kind of ring compositions in um, overly oral societies, you know where you are in the story. You can kind of work your way uh, through the story. How many of you have ever had to read Moby Dick? All right. I've read it twice. I still don't really understand what's going on. I get lost in all the vagaries. There's not nearly enough action, and there's way too much talking about the technicalities of what a whale is. Um, it's just not, and I was like, it's a great work of American literature. I was like, I gotta ask you, did the author call it that? All right, or what did other people call it? It's like Melville's going, I have written a great piece of literature. You must all read it. He was, by the way, a literary critic, so he did contribute to his own reputation. Um, anyway, uh, Matthew very carefully crafts a gospel, the good news about Jesus, in this ring structure. And one of the aspects of that ring structure is you will often find what I called imperfect analogies um, a few weeks ago. You will find incidences that occur at the beginning of Jesus' life and at the end of his life that are similar. Um, we are in the middle of, of one of those, which is Jesus being confronting a, a king or a ruler. In Matthew chapter 2, the infant Jesus... Um, is in a confrontation, although he's an infant, um, his family is in a confrontation with Herod, the great king of the Jews, and Herod is trying to decide who Jesus is, whether he's a threat, and deciding what to do. And we're going to find that ultimately he decides the solution to this infant Jesus is to kill him. And then at the end of the narrative, in the Passion narrative, Jesus is confronted uh, with Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of the same area that Herod was king over. And Herod and Pontius Pilate also has to basically put Jesus on trial, decide whether he's going to accept his message, whether the people will accept it, and ultimately Pontius Pilate decides the solution to Jesus is to kill him. So there's this analogy going on in the narrative. So we are uh, we're in Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to be picking up in verse 7. Last week we talked about um, how Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That was the second messianic sign, the second sign that Jesus was the Christ, um, that he was born in Bethlehem, um, and that there were multiple... Uh, there were multiple testimonies of that. There was the um, the testimony, the internal testimony, Joseph, and then there was an external testimony, the Magi coming looking for the king, and then the testimony of Scripture in in verse six. And so uh, Herod the Great, um, the great king, he summons these Magi, these wise men, to his um, to his side. And now he knows where the king of the Jews is supposed to be born, and so he's going to meet with them in chapter 2 and verse 7. Herod summoned the wise men secretly, summoned the magi secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, the star that they had followed to get to Jerusalem. He sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. 
And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Um, Let's kind of take a look at this and discuss this. So... um, you notice that that what Herod Herod very obviously has a plan when he approaches this thing. He doesn't call the magi, uh, the wise men, to meet him in the throne room where everybody can hear, but rather he says, "I'm gonna, I want to meet with you quietly, secretly, pull you into a side room. Let's talk about this Messiah issue. Let's talk about this King of the Jews issue." And he really wants to know. He says, um, the the word there, ascertained in verse 7, he says, I I want you to lay out for me how you figured out this this star was a mark of the king of the Jews. Just set it out for me. Explain it to me. Now, now Herod the Great um, is um, not an idiot. He's a very, very intelligent person. He's a political machine or political uh, creature. He has managed to survive through coups and assassinations and triumvirates and control in Rome. He's managed to build an economic kingdom. Uh, He's one of the great kings of the the early Roman, um, the late Roman Republic, early empire. He is is a master at doing what he does. He works a lot with a number of groups of technical people. He built uh, a harbor at Caesarea Maritima. He's the mind behind the construction of the the temple mound um, that housed his temple or this this, uh, artificial structure, flat surface that people could gather in. He's worked the politics. He's he's managed to um, do all of this because he's not stupid. He's He's a bright guy. And so he calls the Magi in and he says, all right, lay out for me all of everything that, that led you to here. And the, the Magi, the wise men, apparently do it. They, they lay out all the, the situation, where they saw the star, how they, why they followed it, why they thought it represented whatever it wanted. And then he sends them in verse 8 to Bethlehem and he says, you go and you search diligently for the child. The word he uses there, he literally means you, you look carefully, you do your research, you do your due diligence. It's a term that actually derives from um, doing censuses and um, making sure you have accounting for everything, you know, kind of inventorying things. He says, you go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word. Now this word, uh, this word, bring me word, it actually comes from the word euangelion, which means gospel. He says, you bring the good news back to me. Don't, don't proclaim it. It's a, it's a closed sense. So you bring the message to me, kind of a secret message, and then I'm going to go with you and I'm going to worship him. So you, you should immediately see a dynamic that's happening with Herod. That Herod is trying to control the narrative. We never, we never deal with that, right? People never try to control the narrative to their own advantage. Um, Herod is under threat, and so he is very meticulously putting together a plan, a strategy, to be able to control the narrative. 
Now, there could be a lot of reasons for this. When you read commentaries about the Gospel of Matthew, they talk about um, the enemies of Christ, how the scribes and, and everybody were, were the enemies of Jesus, and they're working with Herod. I'm not entirely sure that that's true. Um, they they present Herod this um, the message in verse 6, the prophecy about the Messiah. And if you remember from a couple weeks ago, uh, I talked about Herod. Um, Herod has already executed two of his wives and three of his sons. Um, he has violently put down rebellions throughout his kingdom. The guys that are going to inherit his kingdom are so untrustworthy that the Roman Senate delays for decades before they let them have any kind of position of authority. They're kind of hoping that they will be the victims of their own incompetence and the Romans can just take over. When they finally do let Archelaus take over uh, the kingdom of Judea, uh, he makes such a mess of it that the Romans have to send in a governor. That's actually why Pontius Pilate is the governor of Judea at the end of the book of Matthew. So maybe they're kind of, they're open to this idea. Hey, there's someone, there's another king of the Jews, someone who was born king of the Jews. And it seems like Herod looks at that and he says, well, how can I work this to my, my greatest advantage? If there really is somebody who has been divinely appointed by a star to be a successor, I want to get him into my household, raise him in my image, so he can be worthy of me. And if he's a threat, he's still a little kid, I can just get rid of him now. So he's controlling the narrative. The Magi seem to be pretty convinced in verse 9, listening to the king, they went on their way. They said, okay, so the king said, child's born in Bethlehem. I mentioned this again last week. I mentioned this. Bethlehem is only five miles southwest of Jerusalem, and you can see Bethlehem from where Herod's temple would have been in Jerusalem. So Herod could have literally brought the Magi, I'm assuming there are only two at this point, because it'd be hard for him to put his arms around more than two, bring them to the edge of his, of his palace and go, Bethlehem, right down there, in the, the ridge right there. You, that's where you're going to go. And they go, okay, great, wonderful. They get on the pathway, they start walking, and the star appears. Now, um, this is proof. I, I think the, the Magi have kind of a celestial GPS. Because they should have been able to get to Bethlehem without a star from Jerusalem. It's only five miles. It's not that far. It's a straight shot. There's only one street. And yet God is like, let's just make sure they get to the right place. So um, I've always thought that the reason for this is that the Magi were really, really bad at following directions. They kept getting lost the whole way. That's why it took them two years to get here. Um, they keep getting distracted, right? They're off uh, taking side trips. But anyway, they, um, they, they follow the star. And the Bible says, behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Now, Critics of the text have always made a big deal about this because, as you know, stars don't do this. Um, stars don't just float and then stop. Um, if it's a planet, it's going to keep moving. If it's a comet, it's going to keep moving. If it's an asteroid, it's going to streak through and then it's going to blow up. So what is this thing that they're looking at? Now, my, my personal, my best, my best guess at this is this is an angel revealing himself as a bright object in the sky. 
And so they call him a star because what else are they going to call him? All right. Um, that's my best guess. Now, people talk about oh, it's an astrological phenomena. It's a it's a conjunction of planets. And I'm like, really, a conjunction of planets appeared over one house in Bethlehem. That you don't have a logical problem with that at all. You know, it's like a giant sign pointing this house, this house. Um, you know, uh, so. It seems like something happens and it goes to the house. People make a big deal about a verse 11 that it goes into the house, right? And people are like, well, so obviously this is long after Jesus was born because um, because Jesus was born in a manger. I've talked about this in the past. Um, the 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 mangers, the 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 stables, they were in the bottom level of a house. And if you were going to have a baby, you were not going to go through that. Um, traumatic experience in the guest room of the house with the rest of the family there you would go downstairs into the stable you'd have the baby that was actually not that uncommon to do in a crowded situation so this doesn't itself dictate how old jesus was or anything like that but they see the child with mary as mother this again not to draw attention to something but do you notice someone missing there is joseph asleep this is my, <laughs> this is always, you say, you say, no, no, he would never be asleep. Uh, let me tell you something. Fathers of newborns learn to sleep through anything. So maybe Joseph is asleep. I think he just, maybe, um, he, you know, he's just focused on Mary here, Matthew is. But going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down, they worshipped him, they opened their treasures, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Um, these three elements, again, they're, they're representations of, they're, they're valuable objects. They're meant to represent um, tribute from all across the world. Now here's what's an interesting thing, for me anyway, that Matthew is doing in this story. Matthew is very slowly integrating the entire world into the story of Jesus. By having the Magi come from the east, he is having representatives of the world to the east of the Roman world, the non-Jewish Asia population come to observe and to bow before Jesus. Um, he has the king, Herod, the king, his, his own representatives, his own scribes, his own scholars are also submitting to the authority of Scripture. And although they will not bow, they're recognizing Jesus as who he is. In a moment, we're going to get, uh, probably next week we'll get into the third sign, um, but, um, or the fourth sign, but we're going we're gonna to keep developing this. So there's this submission and then being warned in a dream, they do not return to Herod. They depart to their own country by another way. Um, so uh, this is kind of interesting, right? So the Magi, they have a star that leads them to Jesus. But the star intentionally disappears so that they are forced to go to Jerusalem to ask where the king was born. They get the information from the king. They go and they find Jesus because the star reappears. Then when the star disappears and they've presented their gifts, instead of another star leading them home, they just have a dream that says, now you're on your own, just don't go back to Herod. So there's this really interesting dynamic that's going on with God being at work and the Magi and, and everything that's happening. But in verse 13, when they had departed, behold an angel of the Lord or the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. See, he's asleep. 
father a newborn, right? How many of you, how many, I remember very distinctly, we picked up Ariel from school. I remember Ariel being maybe four, five, six weeks old. I don't remember exactly how old she was. Nicole had to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. She put Ariel in the bed right next to me. She said, if she cries, wake up. And I went, and all I remember is a few minutes later, my wife coming back in the room, very upset with me because the child was screaming her lungs out and I was unconscious. I mean, she was like this close to my face and I was completely out. When I sleep, I sleep hard. That's the way it goes, all right? Um, I don't sleep a lot, but when I do it, I do it professionally. And um, so maybe, maybe, I mean, maybe Joseph is asleep through the whole thing. Joseph is sleeping. Wise men knock on the door. Mary opens the door, baby in her hand. Hello, wise men. They come in, they worship, they give gifts. Joseph's still asleep. I don't know whether that's true, but it makes it funnier. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and he said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And and the Greek tenses here are that he literally wakes up immediately. He rose, he took the child, his mother, by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. That Joseph literally snaps awake, he says, Mary, pack up the baby, we're leaving. Oh, nice. Gold. Good. We need that. Where where did this come from? <laughs> She's like putting the myrrh in the suitcase. He's like, he's like, we don't need that. Leave that here. Um, let's go. So he gets going and we have this moment. And this was to fulfill that the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I will, I called my son. Now we're going to talk a little bit about Joseph, but I just want to, I want to kind of pack this. We'll talk about him um, uh, next week. So this whole scenario, this whole situation, as it's unfolding, it's getting more and more complicated. We start with just a, 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 a pregnant woman engaged to a guy. An angel appears, so he, he calls Jesus. He takes Jesus as his son. Now we've got magi and kings involved. And now Joseph is being asked to, to leave, to go to Egypt. Now... Matthew's the only one that records this bit about Egypt. In fact, Matthew is the only writer in the entire New Testament who uses Egypt in the narrative at all. Um, no one, and I don't talk about just Jesus' birth. I mean, literally, Egypt might as well not exist in the rest of the New Testament. The only places you get a couple references, you, you get a bunch of references about the Exodus, right? About Moses and all that stuff talks about Egypt when people are retelling that story. And you have one or two references to people being from Egypt in the book of Acts. And you have this one moment where Jerusalem is called Sodom and Egypt in the Revelation. But none of the story happens in Egypt. Which is kind of odd because Egypt was the most populated country outside of Rome in the Roman Empire. Alexander was the second largest city in the Roman Empire, the intellectual center of the Roman Empire. It was where almost all of, of the Greek-speaking Jews lived. It, it was a big deal, and yet it doesn't appear at all. But here, the angel says to Joseph, take your child and flee to Egypt. Why Egypt? Why go to Egypt? Now for Matthew, the, the irony of this had to be irresistible. 
Because for Matthew, in Genesis, Joseph, the first Joseph, saves Israel by taking his brothers and their descendants to Egypt. And for Matthew, how could you turn down the opportunity to say, Joseph takes Jesus, the embodiment of all that is true Israel, to Egypt to save him from a raging king. Notice the irony in Matthew's story. All right, why do why why do the um, why do the Israelites leave Egypt in the book of Exodus? Because Pharaoh, who doesn't know Joseph, he's killing their children. Moses manages to escape; they're being enslaved. So Matthew inverts that that the true Israel, Jesus, is taken by this Joseph down to Egypt to be saved from a raging king who wants to destroy him. So there's just this, all these literary layers and, and imagery and, and ideas and allusions and analogies going on. But there's this third moment, this this prophecy, this messianic prophecy um, uh at the end of verse 15, quoting Hosea 11.1, 1, out, out of Egypt, I called my son. I mentioned this before. Matthew is going to constantly be expanding who Jesus came to save. Who needs to hear the gospel of Jesus? God himself taking on flesh and dwelling among us he starts with Israel in chapter 1. Then he brings the Magi in in chapter 2. The religious institutions around the Magi. And now he's bringing the Greek-speaking Jews from Egypt into the story. He's saying, everywhere you go, there are people that need to know about Jesus. That Jesus is the gospel of Christ is going to be present in the whole world. It's not just a Jewish gospel. Why would Matthew need to make that connection? Because there were people in the world that were saying, the story of Jesus, the gospel, the narrative, it's only for us. It, it's for the Jewish people. It's for the Galileans. Or it's for the oppressed. Or it's for the this. Or it's for the that. And they wanted to narrow the focus of the gospel in such a way that it only benefited their group. Now this might sound like a bizarre application, but hopefully not. But probably will. We live in a world where people are focused on the benefit only to their target group. We live in a world they want the gospel to apply specifically to them. And they couldn't care about anybody else. They want the message, the truth, to be their truth and their message. And they want it conformed to their ideals. They want it to fit into their expectations. And in Matthew's day, it was no different. There were people, faithful Christians, good Christians, good, righteous people, in Matthew's day, who were kind of drawing lines as to who the gospel should reach. Who was Jesus, the Messiah, of? 
well, he's the Messiah of the Galileans. He's the Messiah of the, the Jews. Or maybe you get so big as to say, well, maybe he's the Messiah of the Jews and some of the Gentiles, if they're willing to conform entirely to everything that we tell them they have to do. And yet for Matthew, Matthew, even in Jesus' birth, he's saying Jesus... Jesus was revealed in the stars. Jesus was revealed in the prophecy. And people came from the east and people and Jesus went to Egypt and, and came out. And those Greek speaking Jews have just as much right to the Messiah as the Hebrew speaking Jews in the Levant, in, in um, Judea. And John will expand that. He will bring in the Samaritans. And Paul will expand it when he reaches out to the nations, the Gentiles. Um, and Matthew is already doing that, but, but he will, they will constantly be getting bigger and bigger in the scope of who the gospel is for. Frank Herbert once, uh, Frank Herbert's a science fiction writer, not L. Ron Hubbard. He's the guy that wrote Dianetics and started Scientology. Frank Herbert wrote Dune. Um, so equally obscure for people who don't like science fiction. Frank Herbert once said, the purpose of my writing is to expand the definition of like me. That sounds like a really weird statement. But remember, Frank Herbert was writing in the 50s and the 60s when people were being told that because of the color of their skin, they couldn't eat at a particular lunch counter. And Herbert wanted people to expand their idea of who is like me. Who is human like me? And Matthew, at his time, he is writing and he is saying, who does Jesus die for? Who does Jesus love? Who does Jesus belong to and who belongs to him? And he continually grows his definition beyond the expectations of humanity. We live in a world that wants to divide up everybody by a label. We, um, we want to uh, label each other politically. We want to label each other with gender labels and various and assorted things. We, we want to label each other with, with liberal and, and conservative. We want to label ourselves with all the different categories. Theologically, we want to add all of these labels and categories. And I would submit to you that from the very roots of Matthew's gospel, that was never the intention We are always supposed to be, rather than trying to divide up humanity, we are supposed to be uniting humanity under the kingship of Jesus. You say, well, what if people don't want him as their king? That's okay. We don't need to label them as non-king people. We can just say, we still are looking for everybody to unite under Jesus. You want to deal with the the problems of our world, and I know this is controversial to say, but you want to address the problems of hatred and bigotry and all of those things, get your focus off of people's desires and needs and get your focus on Jesus. Because Jesus came not for this group or that, but for all. And Matthew is going to continue to expand that idea. He will actually really, really flush it out in chapter 13. Real quick, 
so far we've had three things, three, three messianic signs. I just want to summarize them as we go through. The first sign is that he would be called Jesus, that he would be the king uh, in the line of David, adopted by Joseph into that line, called Jesus, which means salvation, Yeshua in Hebrew, the salvation of God. So he was recognized as the king of David. Secondly, he was born in the town of Bethlehem, which is the land of David, the, the proper place and the authority. And thirdly, he came out of Egypt, according to Hosea 11.1. 1, he came out of Egypt. In other words, it is he is not just um, bound to being Israel's Messiah. There's something more going on. And then from a practical point of view, I would just ask you this question. I'm not asking you whether you go around dividing the world into segments and break and say this person belongs and that person belongs, but how do you respond to a world that does that? It says, well, you don't understand because you are this label and I am this label. How many of you have had a conversation with somebody that, that it revolved around that? Well, you don't understand because you're this, but I'm this. And sometimes the word that they use to describe you, you don't even know what it means. You're like, I am? Can I look it up before I decide whether I am or not? How do we respond to that if we are to be the body of Christ? I don't have the answer for you. I'm just asking you the question and letting you process it. Because if this season is about the incarnation of Jesus, and if we are the body of Christ, then we are supposed to minister to our broken and fractured world the same way he did. And call them to submission to him. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Jesus, even in your infancy, people were accepting and rejecting you. And even in Joseph, you were, you were going out into the world and touching the lives of the world beyond limits that we set for ourselves. Because we live in in a world where Christianity is so standard, I think it's so hard for us to get our heads out of that and understand how radical it is for you to love the world. That even in orchestrating the events of your infancy, you were touching the lives of so many. And Lord, help us to be your body to not give in to the idea or the notion that the world can be dealt with, categorized, and divided, but to call all to you. May your spirit be at work in us in this season and all year round. We pray this in your precious and holy name. Amen. My brothers and sisters, go in peace and be the church.